Hey everyone, Giordano here from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government Ad series. This podcast is a companion to our latest Honest Government Ad about electric vehicles. You see, the car industry is currently undergoing an epoch-defining revolution from the combustion engine to electric vehicles, EVs. This presents a unique chance to rebuild our manufacturing industry, upskill our workforce, improve our air quality whilst tackling the climate crisis and advancing human civilization. Of course, on realizing this, we said... Nah, let's instead orchestrate a fear campaign about EVs so we can score points off labour. This Honest Government ad explains why our government's policies on EVs is so infuriatingly shit. But the reason I decided to make it now is that in early May, the Victorian State Parliament will be voting on a proposed tax on EVs. And in this podcast, we'll be getting into the details of why we so urgently need policies that incentivize rather than discourage the electrification of our transport system, which is one of the leading causes of CO2 emissions and health problems. As always, there was a lot of information we couldn't fit into the video, which is precisely where the podcast comes in handy, allowing us to delve into the topic in more detail. And I'm stoked to have as my guest today an expert on the subject. Ketan Joshi. One of Australia's most widely respected science and technology communicators, Ketan holds a science degree from Sydney University. He's worked for government agencies including the CSIRO and ARENA, and he's the author of Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future, as well as numerous articles in Renew Economy, The Driven, and of course on Twitter, where you can follow his work. Before we get started, I want to mention that this is an edited version of my chat with Ketan. I try to keep these videos to under an hour, but there was tons of interesting stuff that Ketan spoke about. So rather than leave it out, we've published a full version of this interview on our audio podcast. You'll find the link to it in the video description. This is also a chance to remind you all that all these videos are also available as podcasts on your podcast app. Just search for the Juice Media Podcast or go to thejuicemedia.com forward slash podcast. Oh, and I also want to clarify for all our non-Australian viewers who might not be familiar with our domestic politics, the Australian government, which we commonly feature in our videos, is our federal government. But just like in the US, each Australian state and territory has its own government, such as the Victorian government for the state of Victoria, which is where we live. Also, Victoria has a Labour government, whereas the federal government is controlled by the Liberal Party. I just wanted to mention that because often I see people saying we only ever satirise Liberal policies. We don't. We satirise shit government policies, whether Liberal or Labour. And now that we've got those clarifications out of the way, let's get started. I hope you enjoy my chat with Katan, and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Ketan Joshi. It's really awesome to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Um, look, I love your work. You've, um, you know, you, you don't only have a talent for taking complex information and topics and making them understandable to people, um, often in a humorous way, but um, you also have this kind of ability to channel the sheer horror and disgust that so many of us feel when talking about our government, uh, our government's energy and climate policy shitfuckery. Um, and, uh, you know, when I read your work on these topics, I can sometimes sense the physical discomfort and embarrassment that you feel. Uh, for example, you wrote an article in December about our government's decision not to use the, the Kyoto carryover credits. Um, and the opening line is, it's never easy to explain the sheer horror of where Australia's government sits on climate. We've become badly desensitized, but please let me try. And uh, I just, I really kind of um, 
that's exactly the feeling that I have when I try to write the honest government ads. It's like, my God, you know, how how do how to convey the sheer horror and, and disgust and disappointment. So even though we've never met in person, uh, I kind of feel like we're col colleagues of sorts in chronicling the Australian government's department of shitfuckery, as we call it. Yeah, it's a strong feeling and it drives a lot of what I do. Uh, and it's always hard to find the balance because sometimes the emotion gets in the way of the analysis, but I, I try. But, uh, you know, the emotion is such an important part of, of really kind of Otherwise, it's very dry stuff, and, and it is important to make it clear why it's so important. So, you know, I also wanted to mention you're very widely cited as one of the most effective, compelling and trusted communicators in Australia's energy and climate policy scene. Your, your Twitter threads, you know, really command a lot of respect. And when he was on the podcast, Simon Holmes Court described you as the next generation Dr. Carl. How did you come to play this this role in in, in the scene in the Australian um, climate energy scene? Perhaps by way of introduction, you could tell our listeners a little bit of your background, your credentials, if you will, and what inspired you to do what you're doing now. Yeah, uh, that's very nice of Simon. Thank you, Simon, if you're watching or listening. Uh, I actually started in the um, wind farm industry in 2010. I started out as an analyst. I did my science degree. Uh, I really wanted to do like neuroscience or psychology or like uh, some sort of like socially tuned field of science. Uh, I ended up sort of focusing really heavily on neuroscience because it was it really just seemed very important to me. But when I when I left university, I had no idea what to do. Uh, I sort of worked in a few jobs that I didn't really care that much about. Uh, and then I was like, one day I was like, okay, oh my god, I really need to find like a sciencey sort of engineering type job. Um, and one of the first that came up was this job at, a, at an energy company, like the ad just said energy company, um, like a data analyst. And I was like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll apply. Uh, and somehow uh, I like stumbled my way through the job interview and I got the job. Uh, and it was essentially setting up this monitoring center for a bunch of wind farms in Australia. Uh, and I thought that this job would be this kind of like, you know, shift work, data analysis type thing. Uh, and what I found out almost as soon as I started, uh, that this was this incredibly fascinating field that actually touched on all of the parts of science that I've always found the most fascinating. So uh, when there's large scale widespread misunderstanding of science, uh, when people actively deny science, when people uh, try to use numbers actually in, a, in a nefarious way, uh, that this was 2010 and um, you know, uh, Julia Gillard was prime minister. Um, it, it was right in the absolute midst of this massive climate change politics thing in Australia, where there were all these new climate policies. The amount of misinformation uh, in the media was completely wild. Uh, so I actually worked in data analysis and grid, uh, like sort of grid operations for about, I think it was three-ish years. But it was pretty quick that I started like blogging and writing and tweeting. Um, I sort of started using Twitter, I think it was around 2013, because I knew that there had to be some type of correction to the stuff that was going on in the public sphere. Uh, people, generally the people with at least cursory knowledge of like energy and climate fell into two categories. So the people who knew enough to use it for bad ends to sort of try and make like renewables look bad, for instance, and then there were the people who knew a lot about it, but didn't really know how to compete with the other crowd, right? Like the, the other crowd being people who 
were actually really good at getting into the media, good at being really colourful and interesting with the way they were writing. So uh, I was like, okay, well, maybe I can be colourful and interesting with the way I write, but also, uh, like, not lie. You know, um, try and be right in the things that I say. Uh, and so that was really, uh, that was a really challenging thing because there's this whole model of like science communication that was always like, you can only really be passionate when it's about excitement, you know, when there's like a cool new spider that has like, you know, that shoots venom or something out of its face. Um, like that sort of science communication, like you would have seen it. Uh, it's sort of uh, the only time that science communicators are allowed to be passionate. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I should be an activist, you know, uh, uh, a science communicator with a very clear bias uh, in favor of like action to reduce harm to human beings through, you know, um, reducing the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, maybe I can be that type of science communicator. Uh, and not many people have done that. You know, that's actually a really, that's actually a really weird new thing. Um, uh, in Australia, there's, there's not so much of it. Uh, in other countries, there's actually more and more of it. Um, like, in, like in America, for instance, um, is a really good example of where there are a lot of science communicators who, who are sort of activists and campaigners at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so I see myself very much in that in that format. I use the tools of journalism sometimes, um, like I like I interview people, I write coverage of, of events, um, you know, as part of my uh, role as a writer um, for a, an outlet in Australia called Renew Economy. I also write for The Driven, um, but I'm not a journalist. I, I, I'm sort of a, um, a, like I'm like a data driven commentator slash analyst. So uh, you know. Um, I try to be really careful about how I describe myself uh, or how people describe me because uh, I'm not I'm not the sort of traditional or, or not like a traditional reporter and nor am I a traditional science communicator. Um, so this is a this is a very strange and interesting position that I find myself in. But it seems like there's a there's quite an audience for this. Uh, people really want uh, the passion of activism paired with you know people who check <laughs> like people who. Mm -hmm. Uh, admit when they're wrong or put effort into research and, and trying to trying to make sure that they're right and the understanding that they're understanding that there are you know we as communicators that are quite fallible as well in, in the way that we do things and that and the constant temptation to make shortcuts and, and um, uh, you know leave things out is actually always going to be there and you always have to have to push against it um, so yeah that's that's sort of a summary of the arc of my career I worked um, I worked for a renewable energy company until about 2016. I also worked in government, so I worked for the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Uh, and since then, I, um, I've done a bunch of freelancing. I worked for the, I worked for the CSIRO in data science communications. Uh, and I've also, uh, at the moment, uh, I've been doing a lot of freelancing. I wrote a book last year. Um, it's called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. That's for the University of New South Wales Press. Uh, that was basically about what I've just described, which is like a decade of... Uh, trying to grapple with all of these massive uh, industrial and infrastructure issues that blend with like public health and safety, social justice, uh, economics, and of course, you know, the hard data of like emissions and climate change. So yeah, that's my summary. Right. Um, it's, it sort of <laughs> brings me to now. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm glad to see I'm not the only one who struggles to briefly say what it is that I do. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a little bit like this, a little bit like that. But yeah. but also that's <laughs> yeah. what makes what you do so special. And, you know, whatever it is that um, that you do, whatever, you know, whatever that uh, name of, of what it is uh, that you do, you do it really well and it plays a really important role and people really do value it. And uh, I think what you know, you've started something here in the Australian scene. You know, others have 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 um, followed. I think in in those footsteps. And now we've got you know we've got a good range of communicators. But you've you're often cited as one of you know ones who's been there from the get go. Can I just ask before we get onto the topic of electric vehicles, which is um, the, the the topic of the the, uh, the honest government ad that this podcast is a companion to? When you were working at the CSIRO and and Arena, these government agencies. Did you um, ever have? Uh, did you ever find that you were compromised in how you could tweet, uh, you know, and and have your own public profile? Were you able to speak freely about things, or or were you experiencing pressure about not criticizing government policies? Yeah, this is a really this is a really big problem, I guess, in in uh, the way that speech is managed and like personal and private communication is managed uh, in government agencies, right? So. Uh, CSIRO and ARENA were just no different to every single other government agency, which is basically, you can't really tweet in a way that, uh, that criticizes the Australian government. So, um, so that ranges from like, you know, criticizing politicians, criticizing policies themselves, um, and of course, you know, criticizing the agencies that you work at. Um, but that, that in itself is, is um, pretty controversial, but it's expanded to this odd idea of like impartiality. Um, so, you know, a few years ago, I think, well, actually more than a few years ago, uh, the Australian Public Service Guidelines were changed to make it so that you couldn't, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something along the lines of, uh, you can't instill doubt that you can serve the government of the day, essentially, right? So if you work at a government agency and you write that, you know, um, uh, I don't trust Scott Morrison to make good, good policy, uh, that would count as a contravention of the public service guidelines for right. um, usage of social media, because, you know, someone could hypothetically read that and go, oh, well, but you're working for, you know, this particular agency, which means I don't think, I don't trust that you can um, fulfill your role as a public service officer of this particular kind. Um, and so that is, first of all, it's a bit selectively applied, right? Like there are people who, uh, who are sort of higher up, who have a bit more power, who can pretty comfortably breach those guidelines um, and not expect to get any sort of backlash. Uh, but I have always, you know, when I've been working in those roles, I've always, um, I've always adhered to it, right, as closely as I can, because uh, you have to, if you sign up for that, that's kind of what you've got to yeah. do. Um, and if you breach it, you'll probably lose your, you lose your role, right? Like if you're in a, um, if you're whether you're in like a permanent position or whether you're a contractor or a consultant, you're just not gonna you're just not gonna get work if you contravene the the sort of all the packaging that comes with yeah. it. Uh, and I think that's really bad, right? Like I don't think that's actually a healthy thing. I don't think it's conducive to like good policy or good discourse. Um, and it's part of why it's actually really hard to hear from experts on this because yeah. you know you sort of get um, quite a managed uh, messaging. Um, and it would be so great to actually hear, you know, to have this confidence of like, well, yeah, they work at a government agency, but maybe they should be free to actually express themselves because then we would get better outcomes from yeah. government agencies because there's a healthier flow of information between people. Um, this level of sensitivity around um, what counts as criticism of the government is just, is just tuned like way, way too high. Um, so it's a huge problem and you can sort of extend it to the corporate world a bit as well. Um, 
you know, the, uh, like, this sort of goes into a much bigger issue, um, but, like, there's this, there's this odd sort of conflation between, um, like, discrimination and, like, you know, someone who works at a particular company and they tweet out something racist or sexist or homophobic, um, that gets conflated with, like, tweeting something that's critical of the government, for instance, right? And these are actually two very different things because, one is causing some sort of harm to society through, um, you know, discrimination or abuse, and the other is is hurting the feelings of, of some extremely rich and powerful people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you have to keep those two things separate. So, mm. uh, yeah, that's uh, I, I I actually struggled many times, um, and I probably breached the rules many times because I because I kind of skewed a bit too far. Mm. Yeah, I kind of sailed a bit too close to the wind. Is this why you um, live in Norway now? <laughs> yeah, I had to flee the country. <laughs> um, the the rules on free speech in, in Norway are, are very different. In fact, it's a really it's almost a bit too far in the other direction because you know um, there there is some plenty of racist stuff on TV, um, and you know like far right like white supremacists they're on there on like panel shows you know saying horrific stuff. Um, in one particular instance, you know a few months ago here, uh, a, a far right political party. Uh, was on a panel show and they actually started talking about the host who I think he was a Sri Lankan guy um, and they're like you shouldn't be here um, because you like you know we, we don't we're an anti-immigration party and you're an immigrant and we don't think that you specifically should be here wow and I was like okay that's maybe a bit too much free speech there I think yeah that's, um, well <laughs> I think that's a horrific thing <laughs> wow. it's a horrific thing to say yeah um, yeah, I want to. Uh, sorry, I I, I want to get onto uh, Norway in a second, but I, you know, just when you were talking about um, the pressure that is on, on 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 scientists and government agencies, it just reminded me of this uh, DM that we received from someone, and they said, uh, "I'm just I've just got it here." It said, uh, "Dear the Juice Media, um, thank you for your um, for your honesty and your smart analogies of the Kyoto points, uh, the the Kyoto." Um, uh, carryover credits video that we made. I'm a climate scientist, uh, and um, then later they said, uh, "Please don't disclose my name or, or role." Um, but um, they said, "I haven't publicly liked or retweeted your video because my organization does not tolerate criticism of government policy." But please know that many scientists appreciate your comms, reaching so many, so much wider than ours to help people understand what's going on. Thank you. And I kind of was like, "Oh, that's really nice," but then I was like. Fuck! This is really shit. Like you know, this is this is exactly as you said. We have so many um, uh, great uh, minds in this country who know so much, and and they feel they can't speak. But um, we can speak here, and I think you can speak freely now, hopefully. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, the topic of this uh, honest government ad is electric vehicles. Uh, the video has been up for three days. It's gone. It's gone crazy. Um, it, it's it's gone viral. Um, it's obviously touched the nerve. People are really interested um, in what's happening because it's exciting. Like we're in, we're in the middle of this uh, massive, historic, epoch-defining shift from the combustion engine to electric vehicles. Um, and some countries have embraced it and other countries uh, like Australia are really sort of holding it back against it. And I thought perhaps we could start off with Norway, which is where you live. Um, you haven't explained why you live in Norway. I, I don't actually know. Perhaps you could mention that. But then, you know, also, um, you know, in the Honest Government ad, we, we talked about how Norway is leading the world in car sales, uh, in EV car sales. They're on 56% of new car sales are EVs. That's pure EVs. But when you add in hybrid um, and, uh, and battery, then it's 75%. Um, that's by far the highest um, rate of this is um, new car sales. So that's huge. Um, now, you live there. You've been able to witness this firsthand. Um, can you tell us how it unfolded? Um, 
And, you know, perhaps you could explain what is Norway doing with EVs and this will help put into global context what Australia isn't doing and specifically what the Victorian government is doing now but with this proposed tax on EVs, uh, which we'll discuss shortly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in Norway. Uh, my, my partner works at the University of Oslo. Um, she got a, a great role there. And, and so we're here for a bit of time. Um, we might come back to Australia at some point. Right. Um, you know, assuming that we'll be allowed back yes. in. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> borders open at some point in the future or if it's to stay closed forever. Um, so uh, that's, that's why we're in Norway. Um, and, you know, because I work on climate, um, I can kind of just work from anywhere in the world because, you know, the atmosphere is just everywhere. Uh, it's a relevant issue to every single location on planet Earth. Uh, so uh, I can basically do my work from anywhere. And of course, it's been really fascinating, as you say, uh, to get first-hand experience of a particular type of decarbonization uh, that is happening in Norway. So the electric grid here in Norway is already mostly hydro. Uh, all, most of that development happened in the 80s and 90s. That was a really, that was a really rapid change. Uh, and now, because of the electric grid is so clean, um, Norway can really start electrifying other parts of its economy. Uh, so, you know, of course, in the past, um, transport ran on combustion engines. Um, a lot of homes here in Norway are heated using fossil fuels. Um, and of course, a lot of the industry uh, runs on fossil fuels. Very importantly, the fossil fuel industry also runs on fossil fuels. So this is the massive oil extraction industry, uh, oil and gas extraction industry here in Norway, which the government sort of takes, you know, they sort of extract a lot of money from and put it into this pot, this government pot. Um, and that actually pays for a lot of, a lot of Norway's policies. Um, and so... Uh, what is happening here is um, in the sort of 90s, what happened is Norway started to introduce incentives for electric vehicles. Uh, so this is a really important point uh, that I want to come back to. Norway started a long time ago, uh, and this has been going on for a few decades now. Uh, so this was what they did. First, what they firstly did was they removed road tolls uh, for battery electric vehicles. That was actually kicked off by the pop group, AHA. Um, who I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you mentioned um, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It's a great story because, you know, what they did was they just got this like crappy little, I can't remember the name of the model, but it's something it a panda. that sounds crappy. It was a Fiat Panda. panda that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's a Fiat Panda. <laughs> it doesn't sound like an amazing car. Um, but what they did was they, they, uh, they just started driving through road tour barriers and they were just like, <laughs> stop it. You know, we were doing this in protest. And of course they're so popular um they could do that uh and uh the government eventually confiscated their car um and put it up for auction and um they it, uh, they take that um bought it back and then just started doing it again like they just started driving through um road toll barriers again it was just so it was just so like i don't give a fuck like they, they were they were so brazen about it um and that's what it took like it took this really sort of um, properly anti-authoritarian kind of like um, angry, frustrated tone, this action, um, you know, this was activism. And that was actually a re really huge part of why Norway uh, decided to take action to uh, introduce incentives for electric vehicles, right? So wow. there's no, uh, what, what the way that this has happened is that they've basically started taking off little elements of the, the, the price of an electric vehicle, right? So they, they take off the really significant part, which is Norway has a very high level of tax on most things, right? It's a 25% um, VAT. So you don't get charged 
um, value added tax on electric vehicles, right? Um, and there's a range of other things. So uh, initially they had uh, a thing saying that you don't pay road tolls um, and that you, you can actually use the bus lane if you're an electric vehicle. Uh, so you can kind of skip past, skip past traffic. Um, so Norway has been doing these incentives for a long, for a long time uh, and the tail is quite long. So if you kind of look at this on a chart, uh, and you go back in time, you can see that it's been a steady growth. Uh, it hasn't just been an explosion over the past five years. Uh, in, and this data refers to the number of new car sales each year that were comprised of electric vehicles, right? So this is pure electric. So this is excluding um, hybrid. Uh, and so this is a really important thing. Uh, Norway's use of incentives has created this change in the type of cars that people are buying. And of course, the consequence is that that results in a change in the type of cars that sit on the roads and in driveways here in Norway. Uh, so the proportion of cars that are um, electric here in Norway um, is pretty significant. Um, so the consequence of all of these incentives for Norway's electric vehicles is that a very large proportion of the cars in Norway are now becoming electric, right? So. Where I live in Oslo, uh, it actually has the highest share, uh, sorry, among the highest share between all the different regions of Norway uh, of electric vehicles and comfortably the highest number because of course Oslo has the highest population. Uh, and so what this means is that the experience of being out on the roads is very, very different. So uh, I, I don't drive a car, uh, I use a bicycle and I walk um, to, and pretty much all I do these days is drop my kid off at childcare. Um, <laughs> No one's really, you know, going out and doing stuff. And I, you know, I'll use public transport where, where it's needed, but I try to avoid that um, in COVID. Uh, and so it's actually it's actually a really interesting experience because you get to you get to experience cars from the outside, right? And so you get to sort of see how electrification changes the experience of being on a road. Uh, and so first of all, air quality is is actually a really noticeable thing here. Um, you know, Norway, of course, is already a, a clean country and like a, Oslo is a clean city, but uh, the lack of air pollution, uh, specifically from vehicles, has had a really, really significant impact. Um, so that's not just experiential, you know, it has an impact on the health uh, of people living in Oslo. Uh, and so the sound is really, is really interesting as well. Uh, you don't, you can't hear electric cars coming sometimes. Um, so you've kind of going to be a little bit more wary, um, but at the same time, the lack of noise pollution, um, you know, I live next to a, a sort of relatively busy road, uh, and most noise pollution actually comes from like skateboarders, uh, and electric scooters because they sort of make the most noise on the road. Um, you know, cars are extremely silent. Um, and so that's a, that's a really noticeable thing. You know what they should do um, because course, it is a, it is a safety issue that you can't hear cars, you know, it could be dangerous. So what they should do is just every car should play an aha uh -huh album, uh, coming <laughs> yeah, out of the rooftop just so you can hear it coming as a tribute anyway. So. Uh, some, the Renault Zoe has this like sci-fi hum. Uh, right. and so when it's like when it's rolling down the road, uh, what you get is like this, ooh, and it's so, it's very, it's very creepy and weird. Um, but, you know, you get used to it. because it Sounds like something out of Blade Runner or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> it really is. But it's like, but you've just become accustomed to it. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's, the, that's how a car sounds now. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it only makes that noise at low speeds um, because that's when, you know, actually at a high speed, the road noise, the sort of sound of the tires on the road, 
um, becomes a lot louder. So that signals the that signals that a car is there. Sure. Uh, but at low speeds, um, EVs are very sort of like all you can hear is the crunch of the gravel uh, on the road. Um, and so if there's no gravel, it's sort of like sometimes you just turn around and there'll just be like a big car behind you and you're like, oh, I had no idea you're there. Yeah. And right. Because it's Norway, people are extremely patient and no one will ever yell at you. No one will ever like honk at you. Um, you know, even if you're doing something wrong, people are just like, I'll just wait. I'll just wait patiently. You know, so you've got like this silent electric vehicle, like sort of haunting you from behind. Um, yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny experience. And the other really interesting thing that I've noticed since I've been here is that electric vehicles here are not like a status thing. Um, they're just normal, right? So uh, this was a criticism of Norway's electric vehicle policy is that it, it was that it uh, was unfair, right? Like it sort of unfairly favors the wealthy. Um, but that was the case when there was very, very low availability of different models of electric vehicles. So it's sort of, I think it was sort of a fair criticism, like maybe about five, bit more, more than five years ago. Uh, but what we see now is that uh, the cheap EVs are actually winning, right? So if you compare it to sort of the pricier, like um, the Tesla Model S or the Model X, um, they're actually becoming an increasingly lower share of the total uh, electric vehicles that are being sold in Norway. And more and more people are buying like a small like Nissan Leaf or the BMW i3 or the, BMW, or the um, uh, Volkswagen ID3. Um, all these cheaper models are coming onto the market um, and they're actually becoming... The norm, right? Like it's actually becoming, uh, I guess, like a bit rarer to see a Tesla, um, or at least like an expensive Tesla. The Model Three, of course, is a bit cheaper. Uh, so this is a really noticeable change. And then the other thing that's really worth noticing in terms of like what it feels like to be in a in a, a city, with, you know, dominated by electric cars, is that it's not just cars, right? Uh, delivery vans are electric. Um, garbage trucks, are more and more of the garbage trucks are becoming electric. Um, buses are electric. I feel so great whenever I ride an electric bus because I really, I think public transport is cool and I think electric vehicles are cool. Uh, and a bus is, a, is like a really great combo. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, I actually, just a couple of weekends ago, I went down to the harbor here to have a look at the new electric ferry that's just been uh, made operational. It's, uh, it's, it's, it just looks like a normal electric mm -hmm. ferry, right? Like it's, it's physically identical, but right next to the port, there's a five megawatt charging tower, I guess. Like it's this sort of big rectangular prism that sits on the harbor. The ferry kind of docks and then this charging port just automatically like just inserts into the, into the charging thing of the ferry. And it just it doesn't, it doesn't uh, fill the battery up entirely. It just charges it and charges it up enough uh, to get from, you know, the uh, thing to the next thing. And because it's a fast charger, it, it happens in like, um, I think like a minute or two, um, basically the time it takes for people to get on and off the ferry. Um, so uh, that's a really that's a really noticeable thing. Electric bikes uh, are really, really common. Oslo is just like full of hills. It's so, so hilly. Uh, and I didn't, I, <laughs> I very badly underestimated how hilly Oslo is before I got a bicycle because I didn't get an e-bike. Um, I got a, a normal, you know, <laughs> um, let's call it a muscle bike to make yep. it sound really, a muscle really bike. cool, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not cool because I'm weak and, you know, hills <laughs> are difficult and like, uh, you know, I'm getting better at them, but you know, this is really, uh, there's electrification at every single level here. Um, you know, down to like, you know, uh, like I see when I drop my kid off at childcare, you know, it's just, it's just a completely ordinary site 
to see someone else with a bicycle with a really meaty battery on it and the bicycle itself is massive with this tray and there'll be like you know a 10 year old a five year old and a three year old all just plonked in the front of this bicycle you know the type of thing if you could imagine in australia um this like that family would have a four-wheel drive right yeah, like they would have like yeah. Yeah, they'd have a, a Prado or whatever, and it'll be like, you know, gargantuan. And this, this like elegant, beautiful vehicle, which is like only a fraction of the cost, um, is really uh, is really common and really just accepted as, as like completely normal here. Um, and so it, it's, it's like, it's just, it's way beyond Tesla's. Um, and, uh, there, there was a time when, when Tesla went like, you know, the sort of rich person Tesla was the archetype of this, uh, you know, like, I guess like half a decade ago, but it's changed, uh, and it's really, really noticeable. And it's a really, really positive thing. Um, the only gripe I have about like Norway's transport thing is that, uh, e-bikes aren't, they don't have incentives here. There are corporate incentives. So if you work at a job and like, you know, they want to encourage people to use e-bikes, um, you can get like a corporate incentive, but you know, I'm a freelancer, so I don't get that stuff. Uh, so I just wish that I could get like a subsidized e-bike um, because as I said before, I'm weak uh, and it would be <laughs> nice to have one of those. <laughs> it's really good um, for us to hear that. I think, you know, uh, living in Australia, we just sometimes are completely oblivious to what's happening mm -hmm in the rest of the world. And what you've just described, Ketan, is the future. Like that is, you're, you're like living in a different uh, dimension completely to Australia. And we don't even know that it exists, you know, the things that you've described. And thanks for describing, you know, not just the, you know, the the, the, the technology, you know, the, 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 the you know, electric engine and so on, but also the, the way it sounds. Um, and, you know, the point about the, the, the ferry, um, and sorry, I, you haven't mentioned, but also the way it smells, I imagine, is probably different. You know, the, the fact that you don't have those fumes in the air. Um, and about the ferry, I just retweeted somebody from Norway who said, uh, who posted a photo of the ferry. And I, I, it's, it looks pretty amazing. 144 meters long, 200 cars, 600 passengers. Um, so, but let's let's go from this beautiful, and, and I know Norway isn't like, you know, the the the, the you know they have their own problems in terms of uh, uh, addressing climate climate change and so on they're not like climate heroes by any means but compared to australia it's at least they've they've embraced this incredible revolution of decarbonizing transport um but let's come to australia which is a completely different world like we're literally living in in another century or planet however you want to describe it um so the um the the, the you know the topic of the video was inspired by the government's um, uh, policy, well, in inverted commas, policy, the future fuel strategy, which isn't really a policy; it's a discussion paper about a possible strat about a possible policy. So, it's already it's we're not even on the fucking starting line here, um, and the acronym is FFS, which is uh, we didn't make it up. Often we make up acronyms for policies, but we didn't have to this time. The government's just making it easy for us. It's a very appropriate choice of acronym, uh, sorry, abbreviation. However, it's actually quite honest of them to 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 do it because when you read it, you that's exactly what you want to say for fuck's sake, you know. Now we covered a couple of the reasons why um, that is the case in the video, um, but you've really done some in depth work on on this policy. Can you tell us a little bit more detail? What why you why you you said for fuck's sake when Angus Taylor, our so called energy and emission reduction minister launched it in February of this year. 
Yeah, Australia has a bad history with uh, energy and climate policies and awful acronyms. Uh, there was the National Energy Guarantee, which is shortened as NEG, uh, which is something that abusive men do uh, to women. <laughs> and um, uh, like, you know, to sort of, to like give them, uh, to say something negative about them as a way of reducing their self-confidence. Um, so I don't know why they thought to call it the NEG. Um, that would have been nice to avoid. Uh, and then there's also the Federal uh, Underwriting of New Generation Investment Scheme, uh, also known as Fungi, uh, that that's, um, has been used to justify uh, investment in new fossil fuel power stations. Um, so it's really just not, they don't have a good track record on this. Um, and uh, now there is the FFS, the Future Fuel Strategy. Uh, and you know, this was really, this really slots into the Australian government's current approach to climate policy, uh, which is basically, they want to try and figure out a way to do nothing, right, to basically leave it untouched. So they're not uh, going to put any effort into trying to uh, stop change too much, right? Like they, like the, the, they've uh, directed money towards like, they've done like fossil fuel subsidies, um, they're keeping like oil refineries open, um, things like that. But they're not going to put too much effort into that side of things. What they really want to do is try and pretend like they're doing something when they're creating these policies that don't do anything at all. So the future fuel strategy uh, is basically a document that tries to figure out a justification for doing nothing, right? Um, and so what they do is they like point to uh, the falling price of battery packs, which is a, the, the biggest cost component of electric vehicle. And they say, look, um, battery pack uh, costs are falling, so we don't need to do anything. You know, like why are you getting mad at us uh, when when we don't need to create a policy? This will just become cheap, and everyone will just buy an electric car by default, uh, and you know that everything will be great, and we don't have to create any policy at all. Um, and of course, what matters here is not uh, the eventual endpoint. Uh, it, it matters when you reach that endpoint, right? Because the emissions problem is a problem that happens because emissions add up in the atmosphere, which means you need to take action sooner rather than later. Um, that is why a country like the UK uh, has created a date that it wants to ban the sale of fossil engines by, which is 2030. Um, you actually need to do that to put some pressure on the system to make it change sooner. This is really, really, really important, right? So I talked a bit about before about how Norway started really early. Um, and because it started early, that's why it could use incentives, right? Like that's why it could just be like, well, you know, just kind of shave an extra element off the cost of electric vehicles and then just let it feed into the system over the decades. Um, most countries don't have decades, right? Even the UK uh, was having this debate about whether or not to put a ban on combustion engines. And they opted to do it because they knew that they would have to do that to make change happen sooner. Um, they have run out of time. So you can imagine in Australia's situation, not only has Australia run out of time, um, you know, it's kind of just eating into this climate debt for every day that it, that it refuses to take action on, on transport emissions. Uh, and so with Australia's vehicles, right, um, what they're proposing is very small parts of climate solutions and pretending that, that that's the whole, that's pretending that that's everything you need, right? So. Uh, instead of actually trying to replace the government's fleets of vehicles with electric vehicles, they're going to do like a, um, 
uh, what, what would they call it? Like a, a feasibility study, I think it was, into doing that, right? And it's just, we know that it's feasible, right? Like this is a mature technology. We know exactly how an electric car works. We know about all of the market dynamics. Um, you don't need to do a feasibility study. It's just a stalling stuff, technique, yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so when that document came out, my attention immediately turned to, there was a bunch of emissions calculations in it, right? And they're like, look, we don't need to incentivize electric vehicles. They're just going to happen by themselves. Uh, and we don't need to put any pressure on it. Um, what we do think is going to happen and that, you know, is the better pathway is to actually focus more on hybrids. So a hybrid is a, is a, a vehicle that has a fossil fueled engine inside it, but also has a battery pack and it can kind of switch between um, using those two things uh, to power the vehicle, right? Um, and you get very different types of hybrid vehicles, right? So you get ones you can plug in and charge. You can get ones that are actually sort of older and um, they don't plug in at all. Um, you kind of just rely on the petrol engine to charge the battery. Um, and so this is a really, this is a really big problem, right? Because uh, hybrid vehicles have some emissions footprint, um, but not as much of an emissions footprint as a standard um, fossil car, right? So when you choose to get a hybrid vehicle, you're doing some good, right? And actually a lot of people are choosing this at the moment in Australia because they just don't have an option, right? Like mm -hmm. they can't afford to get an EV because of course Australia has a particularly high cost for EVs. Um, and this is causing a huge problem because now the government is fulfilling their own prophecy um, because they suck so much at incentivizing electric vehicles people are being like, well, I, people are really forced into this corner where they're like, I just want to do something good, right? Like I want to do as much good as I can, but all they can do is get a hybrid. Um, it really sucks because people, I've had so many people like message me and talk to me about it. And they're like, I hate this feeling of uh, trying to do as much as I can, but then being forced into the system uh, where I have to rely on a hybrid vehicle uh, instead of being able to charge up an electric vehicle. Um, so what the government's policy does is absolutely nothing. And we know from the government's own modeling what nothing looks like, right? So uh, every year, the federal government, um, the Department of Environment releases this thing called the emissions projections and it breaks it down sector by sector. So what we have is data that shows what Australia's transport emissions are gonna be um, based on the existing policies of the government, right? Um, and it looks like essentially uh, there's a big drop thanks to COVID-19. Um, of course, the usage of vehicles dropped significantly in 2020, and there's going to be a drop in, uh, relative drop in, in 2021 as well. Uh, but e even if you account for that, emissions are going to flatline, right, from vehicles. Um, what we can also see is what emission, emissions need to be to align with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So this organization called Climate Analytics did this study last year, uh, and I refer to it constantly because it's just a fantastic baseline for understanding what needs to be done. And Australia's transport emissions need to reduce very, very significantly uh, over the next decade. Uh, and that needs to start now, right? Like that needs to start today. Um, and what we find is that uh, even if you have a really high percentage of new car sales that are electric vehicles, that still actually takes time to feed into the fleet of cars in a, in a, a country, because of course people don't buy a new car every day. Uh, there's actually a time lag between, you know, uh, getting that new car uh, and getting the next new car. Uh, and so these 
policies for uh, electric vehicles need to be, first of all, they need to be extremely aggressive um, because there's that delay problem. Um, and secondly, they need to be taking into account all of these emissions targets, right? Like they need to be about emissions. This is why we're doing this entire project of electrifying transport, uh, getting things connected onto the grid is because we want to reduce emissions. Um, and so the government's policy very successfully does neither, right? So uh, it doesn't make any change to the growth of, to the forecasted growth of electric vehicles in Australia. And most significantly, it doesn't talk about emissions, right? Um, except to argue that a, a hybrid vehicles are better. And so that's based on some dodgy statistics with the grid, um, which I won't go into, but you can sort of imagine what they're doing, right? Like they're sort of saying, um, well, you know, we think that uh, hybrids would be better in the short term because charging up a grid, charging up a vehicle on the grid is so bad. But of course, they should also be decarbonizing the grid yeah. <laughs> much faster, right? Um, that same study says that Australia's grid needs to be uh, between 97 to 100% zero emissions by 2030. Uh, and that requires a lot of heavy intervention. It's entirely possible, um, but it requires a lot of heavy government intervention. And of course, um, it should be cleaner to charge your car uh, from the grid than to run it on a combustion mm. engine. Um, but in some states, it isn't. And that's because of the fossil fuel industry that the government is also trying to protect. Right. So the argument so is, see... yeah, so the argument is uh, we can't use EVs because they feed from the grid and the grid is shit because we're shit and therefore we shouldn't have EVs. Like they're using the fact that yeah. we have, we've got such a dirty grid as a justification for not supporting EVs, which is just completely, it's, it happens a lot. It's perverted. Um, it happens. Yeah, it happens a lot where they sort of use their own failures right. to feed into their own arguments, right? right. So they'll, they'll, they'll say something like, they'll say something like, oh, look how great renewables are doing in Australia, right? But that's because another government implemented a renewable policy and the current government tried and failed to stop it, right? right? Um, so because they failed to stop the growth of renewables, they now point at that and go, look how great it is that renewables are growing so much. And it's like, well, they're only growing so much because you were not good at enacting your yeah. own ideology that renewables shouldn't be growing in Australia. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can see where the frustration comes from. Yeah, from no, totally. I, I, this is the stuff that makes my blood boil, and I'm sure it, it makes your blood boil. And and you just yeah. want to go, everybody, like, do you get what's happening here? And the, the problem is that this ob of strategy of obfuscation and, um, yeah, so it's kind of like a, a really, um, it's kind of, evil in a sense, the way that the government really preys on people's lack of knowledge and understanding, which is we can't expect the general population to have such a detailed understanding of policy and all that sort of things. But you, you know, you trust that the government isn't going to do these kind of like mind tricks. But um, this is the kind of stuff that confuses a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I see this a lot, even in the comments to our videos, like, uh, hi, you idiots promoting electric vehicles. Did you realize that when you plug your electric vehicle into the into the grid, what do you think it charges from? You know, electricity is burning coal, so you're just burning it somewhere else. And it's like, that's not an argument against EVs. That's an argument for, uh, you know, shifting our, our yeah. electricity production to <laughs> renewables, you know. And yeah, it's, exactly. it's starting to, the, the bullshit is starting to infect people's minds and they, they then replicate that kind of um, logic and rhetoric which yeah. it's like another COVID pandemic, basically, of, of bullshit. Yeah, uh, so th this is really, uh, it's actually really hard sometimes because often what, often what those arguments come from is uh, sometimes like someone making a reasonable point, mm. but it gets so twisted and so abused mm. in bad faith 
um, that, you know, it, it sort of, it doesn't match what it was in the first place. Mm. And so, you know, like, of course we need to decarbonize the grid at the same time that we electrify the grid. But often those same people will be the ones arguing like, oh, no, no, we can't shut down coal-fired power stations because, mm. you know, that'll cause blackouts or whatever. Um, so you can just, it's really frustrating because a lot of those people are operating in bad faith. Um, they're not really there to um, figure out a pathway to reality. They're sort of there to uh, reassure themselves more than anyone else. Mm. Uh, and so you kind of just gotta, you kind of just gotta blank them out sometimes because uh, yeah, they're just repeating. Um, they're just repeating like the sort of same old stuff. The one argument with around electric vehicles that I think is actually pretty, pretty reasonable um, is thinking about the material costs, yeah. right? So um, uh, and, and this is a, this is something that's going to happen during transition, right? It's not going to be permanent. Um, when you have to convert the world fleet of one machine into another machine, there's going to be sort of a, a I guess like a bump in the usage of um, construction and mining and materials and things like that. Um, and then it levels out as you know you start making machines that last long, and it goes back to what it was before, where you just have to replenish, um, you know, cars that get old with new cars. But uh, electric vehicles in particular have a, a set of unique requirements. So like you've got to you've got to mine lithium, you've got to mine copper, um, and there are a lot of places in the world where um, these companies that that do this mining are paying a lot of attention to like supply chain issues. Um, human rights, uh, you know, making sure that environmental issues are treated properly. But there are places in the world where they're not as mm -hmm. well. Um, and so all, all that basically means is that, first of all, if there are instances in which you can reduce the demand for um, vehicle usage, it's probably a good thing to do um, because it eases the pressure on the electric vehicle industry and it gives them a bit more breathing room to go, okay, well, now we can put some time and effort into having a sustainable supply chain process, right? Where we kind of, we make sure that this is mined in a sustainable way, you know, from like uh, companies that respect human rights and respect the environment. Um, and often what you see is that people will take that issue and just go, I hate electric cars, right? Like this, we, I don't think that we should have electric cars at all because, you know, there's a lithium mine in Chile and the workers are being abused at it. Um, and that's a real problem, right? Because that is also in bad faith. They're not really thinking about um, how to respond to an issue and control for it. Um, and they're also not taking the other side of the equation into, into, into account. Um, so of course, uh, electric vehicles reduce emissions, right? Like that reduces the impacts on, uh, it's a major environmental justice issue. Um, it reduces impacts on the most vulnerable people in the world to reduce emissions and transport, of course, as you said in your video, is like um, the second biggest chunk essentially of the world's emissions. The other issue that's really actually more pertinent is uh, another environmental justice issue, which is air pollution, which you also mentioned in your video, uh, which I really don't think that uh, we have a particularly great understanding of exactly how deadly uh, combustion engines are, or combustion in general, you know, um, like combustion in the home, like gas stoves, um, combustion on the streets, uh, all these vehicles, uh, uh, like producing um, particulates that actually have a really serious and significant impact on our life right now, you know, it's shaving years off our lives, like even in Oslo, there are still, there are still fossil fuel vehicles um, that, are, uh, you know, sacrificing human life, um, just so we can have them around. Um, and that really, really gets to me. So I think like, you know, um, while it's really important to, to think about the supply chain, like the, the supply chain issues for electric cars, the only fair way to do it is to have a really holistic and fair view 
of all the different ways that these two different systems impact, particularly on vulnerable communities, um, communities of color. Um, America's a really, um, you know, horrible example of this where like highways just get built. Highways just like, you know, cut through communities, right? Like these massive, massive roads. Um, and then the air pollution from those vehicles has a direct impact on those people, um, particularly like black communities in America. And it's just really, it gets to me so much that like, uh, we're not treating this as, as urgently as we should be. Um, I think actually, you know, the Biden administration should be doing uh, a lot more on electric vehicle incentives. Um, they're probably going to come up with some sort of emission standards, you know, like sort of like Bill Shorten brought to the, to the last federal election um, to uh, like put pressure on the system and, and make people buy fewer um, fossil cars and buy, buy more clean cars as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how well they go with that. Um, most of their emissions reductions will come from the grid uh, over the next, uh, you know, 10 years. If they hit that 50% target by 2030, about half of the reductions that they need to make will come from the grid. Um, and then um, probably about uh, a remaining, like, I think it was like 14% of all those reductions will come from transport. So, um, yeah, this is a challenge that is just really, it's just so urgent. Um, so not just, you know, making sure that making electric cars is, are sustainable, but also like treating it like it's an emergency. And it really is an emergency, you know, um, not just for emissions, but for air pollution. Um, and, you know, just making sure that this like massive vital function of society, which is moving human bodies around, is not something that is also killing human bodies. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very frustrating, um, to see all of the potential being squandered in Australia. Uh, you know, absolutely. I, I, um, when you were talking about the health impacts of, uh, combustion, uh, you know, when I was researching for this video, that's the one, one thing that really kind of like alarmed me was I, I wasn't aware of that either. And I, you know, in terms of re uh, reading up, it was like, you know, if you live within 75 meters of a major road um, and you have children, I mean, children are particularly affected, and obviously elderly people are also, um, uh, and people with uh, illnesses or breathing difficulties, but especially children uh, who have developing respiratory systems. If you live, if they live within 75 meters of a, of a major street, they're being affected. And there are all these studies that are coming out. We, we cited some of them in the video mental illness, reduced uh, intellectual cognitive capacity. And it's mind blowing. Like we have schools everywhere here that are on busy intersections. Like you literally have creches and kindergartens that are on four lane roads, freeways or whatever you want to call them with trucks passing by. We are completely oblivious as a society to, to, to yeah. what's, what we're doing. And um, it's, yeah, it is, it, it really is um, frightening. And when you add to that also, this is the other thing that blew my mind is that our fuel efficiency standards here in Australia are particularly shit. Like we have a higher level of sulfur in our petrol uh, compared to um, even China uh, and uh, definitely Europe, um, you know, banned some of the, the fuel standards that we still have here 10 years ago. Uh, and we still have the shitty fuel because it's cheaper. And our government um, quietly postponed a regulation. I think it was in 2019. They postponed a regulation for cleaner fuel here. So we're going to have shitty fuel here until 2027, unless uh, unless yeah, our government changes it's policy. It's so bad. Um, it's worth mentioning one other thing, actually, uh, on that. I was reading a study last night um, done by this guy on the U.S., and their fuel standards, right? They're called CAFE standards. I can't remember what the acronym stands for. Um, it's a lot better than FFS. Yeah. 
Um, it was Obama era fuel standards um, for uh, vehicles in the US. And, you know, those had a, those had a big impact on, um, you know, not necessarily incentivizing EVs, but actually definitely reducing um, air pollution emissions and um, greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. Uh, so you can quantify that, right? Like it actually, uh, it actually had some impact. But unfortunately, that was cancelled out to some degree uh, by this trend um, among car manufacturers to make cars bigger. Uh, so it's not just four-wheel drives, but four-wheel drives are a big component of this. Um, cars are just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and so, you know, the small cars become medium cars, the medium cars become big cars, and the big cars become massive cars. Uh, and the consequence is that as cars become more efficient uh, for fuel, they also burn a total larger amount of fuel <laughs> per trip. Um, and so emissions increase. And, you know, the, the International Energy Agency has been banging on about this for a long time. Uh, and, you know, the, the CEO of that, this, this big, you know, international energy organization, you can just see him getting pissed off, right? Like he's just like, uh, Four-wheel drives are a massive part of why transport emissions are rising around the world. Um, vehicles just becoming larger and larger, and, and it sort of brings up this debate about consumers, right? Like, how do we as individuals play a role in, um, you know, worsening climate change and combating climate change? Uh, and I think it's a false dichotomy because uh, marketing happens, right? Like, uh, car companies only make bigger cars available and then they market them, right? They're like, this is safer and this is more comfortable and you'll feel like a, it's like a smoother ride. And this four-wheel drive is far more desirable than you know, this sort of wimpy small car. Um, and so these companies play a massive role in determining the choices that consumers make um, or even like limiting the choices that consumers make. And so there's this interplay that has been happening um, where of course, admittedly, people have been also choosing to buy larger cars. Uh, and that is starting to cancel out uh, a lot of the emission gains. So, so here in Europe, um, there, is a, there is a standard, you know, um, of uh, emissions of, you know, grams per, per kilometre for vehicles. Uh, and there was a target for 2020 um, for the car manufacturers. And, you know, um, it was just going down so beautifully um, for, the first, for the first half of um, the 2010s. Uh, and then it has just become this flat line, right? Because any increase in fuel efficiency is being cancelled out by uh, cars getting bigger. So what this just reminds us of uh, is, first of all, car companies bear some culpability for this, right? Like they don't care about climate change and emissions as much as they say they do. But secondly, it's just urgent uh, to, get this, to get this happening because like whether we like it or not, whether that's a good thing or not, um, that is where we are now, is that cars are just getting bigger uh, and emissions are growing from cars. It's not like this sort of steady state. Um, things are actually getting worse. And so that makes um, reducing emissions uh, and electrifying transport uh, so, so important. Um, I haven't actually done the numbers for Australia. I've been looking for a while because I've been really wanting to know if Australia has bigger cars than other countries. Um, and it's surprisingly hard to find data on this. but. I suspect it probably does, you know, um, like it's just, I feel like it's a common sight to see a big car uh, in Australia. Um, and uh, Australia- You gotta tow is, that boat, Katan. You, you gotta to tow know. the boat, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, like it, like we know, like it's not, it's not a controversial point at all. 
that EVs can now do not only do the functions of a normal fossil vehicle, but it does most of them far better. Um, if all you care about is functionality or style or, um, you know, like the um, status symbol or whatever, mm. it doesn't matter, right? Like there's the, the market now is so huge that you can, mm. um, you can find something that fits the bill. And we're but only at the beginning have... of, of that whole journey. I mean, who knows the electric vehicles, in, in the, even combustion engines, if you compare the ones that, you know, the, the Model T Ford to where we are now at the latest one, it's like a, it's a massive difference. So you can only imagine if there are any problems with EVs today, like, oh, well, the range isn't quite as long as you'd expect it to be. Well, just wait 10 years and, you know, you can probably go to another planet in an EV soon. But I want to ask you about yeah. this, uh, this topic about, because you've mentioned choice and, you know, you've mentioned consumer choice. This is a really interesting angle. Um, I want to get onto the Victorian tax in a, sec in a second, um, but I really wanted to ask you this first because you wrote an article in the Renew Economy where you really approached the, 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 the future fuel, the FFS from this angle. Now, the subtitle of the FFS is Powering Choice, which, uh, you know, we referenced in the video and we, 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 we gave the honest version, which is Powering Fuck All. Um, but, you know, Ang uh, Angus Taylor, the Australian government has really kind of tried to sell it or market it as this is a strategy that is in the interests of the consumer as choice. And famously, Michaela Cash, you know, when she's when she fronted the cameras in that ridiculous performance, she was like, you know, we'll ensure that you have a choice in the car that Australians drive. Does this FFS actually give people more choice? Because I, I, how does that stack up? You really, And also, I just want to read this from your article. because I love this paragraph that you wrote. I just want people to hear it. You wrote, in Norway, where I live, it has taken a range of ambitious government policies to ensure EVs are price matched with fossil cars. By pricing in the social, environmental and health impacts of fossil burning cars, it has actually created choice. In cities like Oslo, a range of initiatives are also allowing people to choose not to drive, including new bike lanes, better walkability and safer streets through car-free zones, things that you've mentioned. I have the freedom to not breathe in substances that kill me. That's actual freedom. I love that uh, because you've really turned on its head this the rhetoric that the government is using. It's like all about it's it's free free market ideology. We you know we kind of want to like give people choice and consumers and freedom. Free, you know, fuck yeah, kind of thing. Um, but yeah. you've really yeah. kind of uh, tapped into that. How, how does how does it stack up from a choice? Does it even provide more choice? Is it even honest? Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, it definitely doesn't. You know, it, what what it what it essentially does is it is it locks in existing boundaries right so so uh you can only really choose to purchase a fossil vehicle um you might be able to choose one that you know comes with an electric motor and battery but it still has a it still requires fossil fuels to run um and you don't have the infrastructure where you live in australia to be able to reliably charge an electric vehicle uh you don't have the ability to afford an electric vehicle because the the costs of um the cost as i mentioned in that quote you know the the cost of fossil fuel fossil cars are put onto someone else right like you don't pay you don't pay for the cost of um uh pollution and yeah. you also don't yeah and you don't and and the um cost of evs is, is um doesn't account for the absence of pollution from the operation of the vehicle um but this actually goes back to a really, really important point. Uh, and it's, uh, like I mentioned before, that there's a debate between like systemic change, you know, politics and policy and regulation and individual change, like the consumer choices, you know, me walking to the shops instead of driving to the shops or whatever. Uh, and it's a false dichotomy, right? Like these two things are really, really closely interlinked. 
Um, and an example is uh, me choosing to ride my bicycle uh, to drop my kid off at childcare, right? Um, I don't want to be in danger. I don't want my kid to be in danger. Uh, and the only reason that I feel safe riding a bicycle uh, on the roads here in Oslo is because there are bike lanes um, and there is education of drivers to be respectful of bicycles and keep distance. It doesn't always happen. Um, and uh, I've had a few like really unpleasant close calls, um, but you know, the majority of the time I feel safe and I continue, I continue riding my bicycle, right? Like, because uh, it's, it's really, it's a decision that I can make because of the infrastructure, right? Because of the gritty policy fight that happened um, in Oslo's council to get bike lanes installed on these roads um, because of the systemic change and, the, and like just the battle that was undergone to get bike lanes. Um, that's why I can make that choice uh, to, to, I can still drive a car if I want to, you know, um, it's, it's like slightly more annoying, um, but I can still do it. Like if I need to go and get a whole bunch of stuff, I can, I can get like a, you know, use a car share electric vehicle and use that instead. Um, so that is actually a really important part of this because what Angus Taylor is trying to do here uh, is get rid of any systemic change and then just make it all about consumer, consumer preferences, right? So uh, he, he's like, well, you know, if people want to buy an EV, what's stopping them? They can get an EV if they want to. Um, but there's actually this bedrock, this system that you have to fight against if you want to make that choice. Uh, and so we've seen this before from fossil fuel companies, you know, um, BP popularized the idea of the personal carbon footprint, um, you know, a few decades ago, where they were taking what is actually a reasonable thing, which is like people trying to take control of their life and control over the environmental harm that they're locked into. And then basically abusing that instinct and that emotion and saying, you're a bad person if you don't do it, you know, uh, it's actually 100% on you, and they're not taking up any responsibility themselves. Um, and so trying to refine that balance um, and trying to talk about how interconnected all of this stuff is, is really difficult because people very rightly feel really gross about having any sort of uh, personal capacity for change sometimes. They're like, well, it's not on me now. It's on those fossil fuel companies that are doing all of the harm. Um, and unfortunately, some of it still is on us, right? Like, um, but it do that doesn't mean that we have to be emotionally abused or like bullied into accepting our fate, right? Mm. Um, you can take personal action, but that personal action can be voting against the government, right? Because that counts as personal action. It can be um, voting against uh, someone who is acting to remove choice from your life, um, not giving you the right to live an emissions-free life or an air pollution-free life. Um, that, that counts as personal action to fight climate change. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be getting a you know, reusable cup or whatever. Um, it can be writing a letter to your political constituents. It can be like fighting at local meetings to get bike lanes installed or to, or to get electric car charges installed on streets. Um, all those things count as personal action, right? Um, and all those things count as uh, you having an impact on um, the systems that lock you into, into a reliance on fossil fuels. So this is a really, really important point because Angus Taylor is trying to break this. Um, he's trying to say, there's not really anything that you can do to change the system. We just kind of have to sit back, go with the flow and accept that when electric cars get cheap, then maybe you might be able to get one. Um, and if you don't have a charger, then, you know, whatever, just ask for one and we'll, you know, maybe it'll happen. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of a summary of what's going on. 
Um, I just, it's just so perverted because the, you know, the whole idea, it, and I really love that we started off talking about Norway because I, I hope that people listening in Australia, I mean, hopefully people listening to other parts of the world, but especially Australians, you don't realize how little choice you have until you sort of put it in perspective in a global context, like a society like Norway, which is actually providing people choice. You don't have a choice not to have your kids poisoned by, uh, by, yeah. uh, fossil uh, fuel emitting vehicles. Um, and that should really make you pissed off, you know. And the, the the icing on the cake is that because of the shitty fuel standards that I mentioned earlier, which again are thanks to our government policy, even when, even if you do drive a fossil fuel uh, uh, car, you're not get we are not getting the latest, most efficient, cleanest, uh, cheapest to run vehicles because car companies aren't sending them to us because they can't run on our fucking shitty petrol. So they're not only <laughs> screwing over potential EV EV drivers, but also regular drivers. So to call that choice, to like really use choice as the banner to put that under, is just like you just have to sort of respect. It's just it's such such bullshit, and the way that they promote it as choice is it's perverted. Um, but look, I you know this is exactly what um, what we're here to talk about. You do it so well in the honest government ads. We really try and, and expose these uh, these um, sort of perversions of of reality, but. I also want to just highlight a little bit before we go into the Victorian tax, what, you know, one of the things that you've really helped us understand is that Norway didn't achieve what it achieved overnight. It's not a, a switch that you can just go click. Oh, okay, great. Now we're, you know, we've electrified everything. It's a, it takes a long time. And the window of opportunity for Australia, this is what should really wake people up. It's closing. Like if, if we don't move and, and in, in time with this window and make this change, we're not just going to, we're not going to be able to catch up in, you know, in, in, in a decade or two. Uh, and that's lost opportunity, not just for health and, and, and risks. I mean, you know, the health things I keep, you know, one of the studies was emissions are linked to dementia. Dementia is the second leading cause of death in Australia and the, the first leading cause of death among women in Australia. And the cost associated with that, we don't even have any understanding of what that it's going to be. Um, but also the cost, the lost opportunities for manufacturing industry, uh, you know, the brain drain that we, we, so many of the engineers in the car manufacturing industry, they all went and often worked for Tesla. They want to come back here, but there is just no opportunity uh, to do that, I read um, somewhere in an article like if you know if the, if a head of a of a car manufacturing company of an EV company comes to a, uh, goes to a, a country like Singapore or Malaysia, they'll be met on the tarmac by the president. But here, it's the head of the Electric Vehicle Council, and there's no interest here in bringing that technology here. So it's the lost opportunity is is just it's insane. But I. I, and I want to bring that in now to, into, into, into the conversation about the Victorian tax because I feel like the, set, the scene is, is set now to understand how back to front and damaging this, uh, this, this incentive is now that the Victorian government is uh, proposing. They're going to vote on this um, EV tax in the first sitting uh, parliamentary sitting in May, so just around the corner. Can you give us a little bit of a, uh, of a sense of, of, of what's happening on this front? Yeah, this is a, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around why this is happening. Uh, I've been trying to figure out what is going on here, or at least like what the thinking or the justification is, and I just can't do it. Um, so basically, um, cars get uh, taxed through the fuel that they, that they burn at the moment in Australia, right? Uh, and that money purportedly um, is going towards maintaining roads, right? Like, so... The amount of money that is taken from cars from the fuel that they use is put towards like road maintenance. Um, and so when you have an electric vehicle, 
uh, it's, it's, you know, it's charged on electricity. You can't really tax that electricity specifically because uh, electricity can be used for just so many things, right? Like you're not going to have a special car charging port at home that you pay a tax on. <laughs> and then, you know, you can just plug your car into the other port and it's, and it's uh, you won't need to pay the tax on it. Um, so this is actually a really interesting and complicated issue because of course, uh, maintaining roads is not free. Uh, you need some money. You need some money to do it, and the road user charge um, uh, through uh, paying a tax on fuel uh, was one of the ways that people, you know, the policymakers were like, okay, well, you know, we don't want to tax people who don't use the road, um, and everyone who uses the road burns uh, fossil fuel, so we'll just put a tax on the fossil fuels. Um, this is an attempt to uh, protect the steep decline in that amount of money. Uh, as electric vehicles grow in the proportion uh, in a transport system, right? So you say to electric vehicle users, well, you drove uh, four kilometers um, over the past uh, day. So we're going to charge you, you know, X dollars per kilometer um, for uh, having used that vehicle, right? And you just see this tone of coverage about this issue where I mentioned before, you know, this narrative of like, Electric vehicles are for rich people. You know, it's like a big shiny Tesla. Um, you know, like Elon Musk fans, like rich tech bros or whatever. Um, they're the ones getting electric vehicles, uh, and um, that's why it's fine to kind of treat them as like this side issue um, that you can kind of comfortably tax because it's only rich people using them. Um, and <laughs> like, you expressed this so well in the video, but like that is so completely freaking ridiculous because uh first of all we know that it's not rich people buying electric cars now right like the market has evolved from as it was you know 10 years or 10 years ago or even five years ago and you can get super super cheap electric cars now right like nissan leaf is just it's like a small beautiful clean little electric vehicle um that has enough range to do everything that you need to do in a city or around the suburbs um, and it, that vehicle itself is just getting cheaper and cheaper every year. Under 20,000. the battery packs. Yeah. Yeah. It's something, it's so low. And like um, uh, that, you know, someone, <laughs> something, someone with uh, a Nissan Leaf is going to get taxed, but someone with like an $800,000 Lexus um, hybrid uh, won't get taxed, right? Like with this. We'll get taxed at a lower rate. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, they'll get taxed at a lower rate. And it's and it's like, okay, you really something is just going completely wrong here, right? Um, and I think that this is actually a really interesting something example of something that I've been, I guess, trying to pay a bit of attention to. So just to quickly zoom out a bit, um, in Australia, you know, the federal government has been rightly getting a lot of criticism for their levels of inaction. But state governments have been sort of lauded as like, you know, picking up a bit of the slack. Um, so, you know, all of them have set net zero targets by 2050. A lot of them have really ambitious renewable energy policies like New South Wales has a conservative government, but they have an energy infrastructure roadmap, which, you know, hypothetically incentivizes a fair bit of um, additional renewables than if that policy wasn't in place. Victoria has a Victorian renew renewable energy target, um, and they're looking to hopefully increase that in, in coming weeks. Um, but... Uh, what we're actually starting to see more and more is that certain states actually have these blind spots, right? So like Western Australia has this huge blind spot towards gas, right? So burning gas for power on the grid or uh, extracting gas 
uh, to sell it to other countries, of course they have a massive blind spot, right? Because this is a major, this is a major source of the um, uh, like economic prowess of that particular state, Western Australia. I don't understand why Victoria would resist uh, switching to electric vehicles, right? Um, I can't figure out, like, obviously, you know, there's a couple of oil refineries there um, and, you know, like they used to be car manufacturing in, in Victoria, but I just can't compute why, what it is that would make them look at electric vehicles and say, um, let's invert this, you know, let's start with the disincentive and then maybe somewhere in the future we'll have an incentive for electric vehicles because, of course, there is already a disincentive, right? Um, the, the existing disincentive is that if you drive a fossil car and you cause harm through the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that it produces and the air pollution that it produces, you don't pay a cost for it. And if you drive an electric vehicle and you avoid those harms, you don't get any monetary benefit for it. Um, and so uh, that is already, so what the Victorian EV tax is doing is it's adding another another element to the already unbalanced scale, right? And it's tipping it further against EVs. Um, and of course, you know, every state that is looking at its transport systems needs to be looking at ways to reduce demand for vehicle usage, um, investing way more money into public transport um, and, you know, at the sort of local level, investing in like active transport, like better walkability, bike lanes, et cetera. Um, but there is absolutely no escaping the fact that you just... Even if you do all of those things at absolute max effort, um, there is still just going to be a stock of fossil cars that need to be changed, right? Um, people, uh, there are a lot of people who actually rely on cars, right? Um, people with disabilities, for instance, um, often need a vehicle to get around. Um, there are people whose business relies on, on, on the use of a vehicle, like a delivery van. There's a lot of um, Nissan Leaf um, delivery vans here in Oslo. Um, they're fantastic. They work brilliantly. Um, and so, yeah, there's just um, uh, the, the, I can't compute this one, right? Like I, I always try and get to the bottom of why something is happening, right? Like what's the real, like what is in the hearts of the people who are really sticking the, with their guns on this and, and, and running with it? And this one, um, I've tried to understand it and I just haven't, I just haven't found an explanation. I don't know, maybe, maybe you have a theory, but um, well, uh, I, can't, I can't compute it. Yeah, I mean, our theory was kind of expressed very crudely in in our video, which is that it's a it's a cash grab. It's like you know, it doesn't make sense. Firstly, the 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 the, the, the fuel excise. I mean, the government has has said their argument is we need to replace lost revenue, as you said, and it's like, well, the fuel excise is levied by the federal government or the state government. So what le what lost revenue are you talking about? And secondly that fuel excess isn't hypothecated directly to road um, expenditure, meaning it's not tied to that directly. Uh, it goes into general revenue. So the arguments, and then also the argument that, oh, well, it's just a tax on millionaires, so don't worry about it because, you know, they're all, they're all the arguments are really flimsy, they don't stack up. And when, the, when, when, when there is no argument, you go, well, this is, what is it? It's, you're just going to make a lot of money out of this and you're trying to introduce yep. a tax which you know nobody is going to oppose now because there's very few EV uh, drivers on the road and you can sort of wedge the population by saying, oh, well, it's only rich people, so you don't need to worry about it. Um, and they've very cleverly played a political game, I think, because they've even called it a clean air tax, which is, uh, you know, how do you, how can you be against the clean air tax? Of course you want, you know, uh, <laughs> so it, it, it shits me. But also, um, you know, we've seen a really interesting debate emerge around all this around taxation because people have said, well, you know, tax, tax is, uh, 
is good. People are like, you know, why are you attacking this? And I just want to make it really clear that, um, you know, I'm not against taxation per se. You know, taxes are good. They've been rightly described as the price we pay to live in a civilized society. But the fact that we have to yeah. argue about this, we shouldn't be rusted onto this, uh, um, you know, this position. We should be able to also call out taxes that are badly targeted and aimed and timed. And this feels like, like yeah. that's one of those. This is a really, this is a really, really important point for me because uh, what is happening now um, in Oslo and in Norway in general is all of the incentives for EVs are being rolled back, right? right? So you can't drive in a bus lane anymore if you're an EV. Uh, the roll toll, um, I think uh, either is proposed to be changed earlier this year or it has already changed uh, such that EVs pay road, road tolls, right? Like either they already do or they will be paying road tolls very mm. soon, um, as they should, uh, because the road toll exists to um, charge the user of that infrastructure for going through it, right? Because the road itself has a cost to society. Um, to maintain the road, but also to, you know, on the environment, on, on the, um, you know, uh, experiences of the people living around that road, you should be paying to, to do that, right? The reason that EVs were not paying uh, is because we needed to force change yeah. into the system to give people the option to, to basically live um, better lives than they would have without that policy. Uh, and so the idea is, is not just that you have incentives for EVs, but as the, as the balance of vehicles start to change, um, you then correct that, right? Like you, you actually start removing all those incentives because the majority of vehicles are the uh, uh, electric anyway, um, and then you just charge them for the for the impact that they have, right? And so you know, with EVs, for instance, that's like some amount of noise, the usage of roads, um, parking, for instance, um, like where vehicles go, you sort of charge them for that. And so, uh, like <laughs> this is why this is why it really really bugs me because I'm watching this play out. Right. And, you know, there are a few like there are a few people who sort of gripe about it. They're like, oh, no, we want to keep the incentives. Um, but mm. actually, for the most part, like the like the EV Association here in Norway, um, they were like, yeah, um, of, no, of course, you should like get rid of <laughs> Of course, you should get rid of the incentives eventually, because, uh, you know, people who use these machines should pay should pay their fair share of tax uh, relative mm. to, to what they're doing. Um, but that argument really just doesn't stack up. Uh, or like it, like it, um, the argument that it's a tax on millionaires really just doesn't stack up because, as I mentioned before, fossil fuel cars already get a subsidy. Um, they already have an incentive, which is that you can drive one and you don't pay for the impacts of the harm it causes through through emissions and air pollution. Um, so people already already getting basically a bonus, mm -hmm. right? In that they get to use a vehicle that hasn't hasn't has a, has a um, impact that causes harm. That they just that someone else pays for, um, and that needs to be corrected. That's that's what that is what all climate policy and what all transport policy is doing, is correcting this imbalance of uh, who gets hurt and who doesn't get hurt. Um, and so uh, the millionaire the millionaire argument really bugs me in particular, um, just because I see it like you know like before before I joined this call like I was just walking you know to drop my kid off at childcare and walk back. Um, and I was just looking at all the cars on the road. And when you look at EVs here, they're small uh, and they're cheaper. Um, they're just, it's not like a flashy, like I'm not like walking down the road and it's mm. like a hundred, you know, Teslas and then like a Porsche, you know, Taycan and like all the hyper expensive fancy ones. You do see them sometimes. And I kind of look at them with a mixture of jealousy and, and hatred. Um, but like, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, yeah. it's just people doing regular person stuff yeah. with like a modest vehicle as you see in most cities except they have fossil cars so um it's really it's disincentivizing 
it's sorry, it's like, it's disincentivizing a project that is there to reduce harm to people, right? Like the entire purpose of reducing emissions and reducing air pollution is to, is to make us feel less pain, to let, let us live like longer lives, right? Um, so, and it's, you know, it's, it's just as, it's just as wild as like, um, uh, charging people, you know, for getting on a bus, uh, because they want, because that bus is on the road and they're not paying like a road. I mean, people already do get charged. I was going to say. But you get the point, right? Like <laughs> charging You're extra in, I'm sorry to, to break this the... to you, Katan, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, people I, have, I people think. People have actually been, uh, sorry, yeah, go on. No, look, I was just going to say, I think, you know, um, absolutely, I hear what you're saying. And I feel like the the, the common sense sort of position here is that it, it's actually sort of a, a bit of both. Yes, we do need a road user charge for EVs. It's the timing of this tax that is a problem. Eventually, once we have like 50% of vehicles on, on the roads are EVs, totally bring in the tax, start to levy, uh, you know, wind back the incentives and all that. I think what people are really uh, angered about is the timing of it, because we're in a market here where we have 0.7% of sales nationally are EVs. I don't even know what the figure is in Victoria, probably lower. But apparently, according to the government's own modeling, a 5% increase in the overall cost of EVs, which is what this new Victorian tax represents, will result in a 2.5% reduction in sales. And we already have fuck all sales. So it, it's um, the timing of this tax is, is, you know, I feel like people need to if we want to be like Norway, if we want to get even yeah. start off the starting line, we have to make it as easy as possible for people to make this transition. Later, we'll worry about recouping those costs. But right now, there are so many issues that, you know, health, uh, you know, I mean, the health one is just number one, environment, climate, those ones. There are others, but yeah. fuck, you know, th th that's the main thing. Um, Ketan, I, I also I want to mention that... Um, you know, we've driven people to a um, to a petition. We're directing them to sign a petition, which is going to be hand delivered to crossbench MPs. The hope is that either the Victorian government repeals this uh, this legislation for a tax, or at least offers very good incentives. Because the thing is, and we weren't able to make this nuance in the video. We said, you know, Victoria, Victoria is the first government in the world will be the first government in the world to um, uh, make it harder to afford an EV. And people went, oh, well, actually, other governments uh, have taxes as well, which is true. We couldn't, the, sometimes the nuance is too much, but what, what's true is that it would be a net, they would be the first government to have a net disincentive for EVs because yeah. it was planning to introduce a tax with no significant incentives, whereas other countries that have taxes have incentives, blah, blah, blah. So hopefully, at the very least, if there's pressure on the Victorian government, they, um, we will be able to get some incentives along with the tax that make it a net incentive uh, overall, which would be at least yeah, a good I compromise. I would, I would really strongly urge people to sign that petition, get in contact with the Victorian government, and tell them and explain it to them because you know this is just another example of uh, of where um, we actually, as as citizens, you know, in in, in um, you know, obviously I'm not like living in Australia, but like. I very much experience this feeling, which is that as a person who lives in a city or a country, I want to have the choice to uh, live a safe life. And um, I think the Victorian government actually understands that concept um, or that philosophy that, that you know, uh, government actually plays a role in creating a field of opportunities and a field of choice that lets you decide to live a less harmful um, life or um, uh, that, you know, that can take many, many different forms, but um, for the people who uh, need to be using a vehicle for some reason, 
um, then they should have the option of letting that form be an electric vehicle, um, an emissions-free vehicle. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's just it's so important to get that across to them because the government actually needs to help make that systemic change that lets people have the freedom to live a safe life. Yeah, I, exactly. You said this is one of those opportunities where you can make an individual choice that will have an impact because every every car that is sold, that, you know, that is has a combustion engine will be on the roads for the next. 15 to 20 years, you know, so mm. it, it really, it really makes a big difference. Um, Ketan, I really want to thank you for joining us. You've given us a lot of your time. I just want to end with one final question. I always like to sort of have a sort of a big picture question um, sure. to end us off, just to remind us sort of uh, where we stand. And this one's sort of like a, an interesting um, question that I wanted to ask you about nationalism and uh, how it fits into the, to the, the, the global fight or, you know, choice of words is important, the, the global sort of, uh, yeah, this challenge that we yeah. face to get the world to really uh, embrace the climate, uh, cha the, the challenge of the climate crisis. Um, I was chatting with Richie Merzian, who I'm, I'm sure you know from the Australia Institute the other day, we were chatting about this topic of EVs and he said he noticed how there's this growing trend of using nationalism as a way of encouraging, um, you know, mo motivating people to embrace, uh, you know, uh, climate solutions so actually invoking nationalism as a form of competition like this is a very powerful form of messaging right um i'm not sure have you seen uh, gm's recent ad starring will ferrell yes right <laughs> yeah. i might put a little bit of a clip up here um while i'm talking but basically will ferrell loses his shit on realizing that norway is out e <laughs> out EVing us you know and he launches an expedition to sort of invade norway and to like you know but basically <laughs> yeah. and it all it ends up with like you know gm all in 30 new models by 2030, let's beat Norway kind of thing. So it's got this kind of like real yeah. nationalist thing. Now, obviously, it's problematic because nationalism is often invoked for completely not productive, very divisive, uh, dodgy reasons. Yeah. So it, 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 Richie was saying it would be interesting to see whether this catches on in, you know, more progressive sort of uh, circles. Mm. But what I wanted to end by asking you, what is your feeling on this? Is this how we solve the climate crisis by invoking this sort of 20th century <laughs> ideal of nationalism? And let's oh, yeah. win kind of thing that is a great question um it's and it's on my mind because it's happening not just in transport so uh you know uh you, you see this sort of tone when it comes to discussing australian climate action not just from like the slightly less conservative parts of the conservative parties but also the um you know, like climate groups, climate activists, um, and from like sort of big names, like people who talk about this sort of stuff a lot, like Ross Garner, Garner they talk about Australia as like a superpower, like a renewable energy superpower. Um, and uh, Australia goes from becoming this massive like fossil fuel exporter, supplying fossil fuels to the world, to becoming a massive renewable energy uh, exporter, right? Like, a, you know, you produce hydrogen and you you put the cable from Australia to an Asian country and you export electricity that way. Um, and the idea is like Australian wealth and prosperity um, and uh, Australian citizens experiencing very little change from a country that is fueled by the prosperity of selling carbon to the world to a country that is fueled by the prosperity of selling um, energy, like um, you know, emissions neutral energy to the world. Uh, and I have mixed feelings about it, as you can probably tell, like I, like on one hand, I very much understand the power of that message. Uh, it's really, it's really important, but unfortunately what happens is sometimes it tends to drown out, uh, the really use of like environmental justice and climate justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so things like, um, 
maybe there's a possibility that the countries that have obtained their wealth um, from fossil fuels, like Norway, where I am now, uh, actually need to pare back um, what they're doing sooner than they replace it with something else. Does that make sense? So like, um, you know, fossil fuel exports in a country that is a massive fossil fuel exporter should go down before it is fully replaced one for one by exporting renewable energy, for instance, to the world. Um, and that is something that is a really big issue because uh, you can't necessarily replace things like under the bonnet. Does that make sense? So like you can't have this sort of like uh, change in a society that you just can't detect switching from exporting fossil fuels to exporting renewables um, without some compromise, right? Like you have greater emissions if you kind of go slower on the transition. Um, if it means making sure that Australia or, or like constantly stays as like a superpower or Norway stays as like a big, you know, exporting country that gets a lot of wealth from exporting energy. Uh, and so when it comes to electric vehicles, um, I actually think that it's a bit safer. I think that the narratives are a bit um, clearer and, um, you know, there's sort of uh, the issues with environmental justice uh, are, are sort of like a little less relevant. I think it's a, I think it's a bit more okay to turn it into a bit of a race uh, and say, you know, look how amazing the transport system is in this world. Um, actually, don't you want the transport system um, that, you know, another country has? Norway is always used as the thing, as like the jealousy center for the world for, for electric vehicles. It's like, you know, oh my God, look at what they're doing. You know, don't you want to be like what they're doing? And of course it was in the Will Ferrell ad. And it just feels, this is just a vibe that it feels a bit healthier and a bit, you know, a bit more productive to me um, than the sort of like export nationalism that you sort of get in other parts of the energy world and the other parts of the climate world. So in the particular case of transport, I think, it, I think it's actually mostly okay um, because, you know, what is happening is that even, it's, even if it's like a bit of a nationalistic competition and even if, you know, nationalism, of course, has leaves a pretty bad taste in the mouths of many people, um, what is happening is that air pollution is reducing in cities and suburbs, right? And, um, you know, children are having like longer lives and, um, you know, the process of extracting the materials required to uh, build a fossil car and um, make fossil fuels and transport fossil fuels, that's all being replaced by a significantly less harmful supply chain. Um, so uh, it's just, it feels a lot better to me. I don't feel gross in the same way that I sometimes do when um, nationalism is invoked in other parts of, of energy and climate. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. And for all of the thoughts that you shared with us, like I feel like, you know, um, this has really been a wealth of, of information. Uh, we've traveled across uh, countries and touched on many different things. And uh, one of the things that I really um, appreciate, and I think a lot of people appreciate is that you, you, you know, you talk about science and technology, but you also bring in the environmental justice component and the social justice component. So you've got a very, uh, it's, it's, you know, you, you, it's a complex, uh, worldview that you encourage people to have and that's really that's really great and I feel like that's you know it's complicated and it's hard to take in but it's so much more enriching and you go oh wow you know um, I really get a, a three-dimensional picture of what's going on so thank you so much for sharing it with us and uh, thank you for all the work that you do on Twitter the threads that you write 
the articles that you write, uh, I know that you know it, it comes at a cost of uh, um, you know psych- psychic health, you know, because you put a lot of emotion and a lot of your passion into it, and you can really tell that you care a lot about these issues, and you get other people to care a lot. So, thank you for all the energy and time and passion that you put into your work. No worries. Thanks for having me on, and thank you so much for all the videos that you create. They're just amazing. I'm sharing them all the time, and they're really fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Juice Media Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Kitan Joshi, thank you. Thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. You can follow Kitan's work on Twitter. We'll add the link to his page in the show notes and also to his book, Windfall, which I'm hoping to read myself soon. We'll also include a link to the petition to the Victorian state government to stop the EV tax, which you can find at thejuicemedia.com forward slash no EV tax FFS. As always, I want to give a huge thanks to our patrons who make it possible for us to make the Honest Government ads and the Juice Media podcast. In particular, our patron producers who support us at the highest level of $100 per month. Thank you. You've been listening to the Juice Media podcast with me, Giordano. We'll be back in the not too distant future with more genuine satire. Till then, take care.